Hello and welcome to American Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson. On this episode, we talk with filmmaker Ram Dennison. Ram is the director of the award-winning film, What Happened in Vegas, and is set to release his latest film, Money Machine, to the festival circuit in the summer of 2020. Both are feature-length documentaries that analyze corruption in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. What Happened in Vegas was sparked by Ram's own experience with police brutality, which led to his investigation into reports of corruption in the Las Vegas Police Department. Money Machine takes a hard look at Las Vegas and how it responded to the October 1 mass shooting in 2017, in light of Ram's discoveries in the first film. In this episode, we talk about Ram's trajectory from working at a small TV station in Florida to editing television shows in Los Angeles. We talk about Ram's approach to filmmaking, the festival circuit, and how the market for independent film has changed over the last 20 years. We discuss the death of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and what Ram sees as a victory in his own quest against police brutality and corruption. Thank you for joining us on this episode of American Podcast. If you like what we are doing here, your support is greatly appreciated. You can leave a tip at Venmo.com, Shane Simonson, or become a Patreon supporter at Patreon.com, Shane Simonson. The easiest way to support our work here is to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. Without further ado, here's my conversation with filmmaker Ram Dennison. So I'm here with Ram Dennison, film director, editor, old friend of mine from a long time ago. Glad to have you on the show, Ram. Well, thanks for having me, man. It was uh, quite something when you reached out to me recently. I hadn't heard from you in such a long time. And it was interesting how you discovered, how you like got back in touch with me. Indeed. I was watching, so when the massacre in Las Vegas happened a number of years ago, I was paying attention to everything around that. And I saw a film on Amazon Prime. It was about that event. So I watched it and I was like, oh my goodness, I know that guy. That film was, of course, far more, it was also mostly about the LVMPD and touched on the mass shooting. But then my next film, upcoming film, Money Machine, is exclusively only about the Vegas mass shooting and like takes a deeper dive into it. Well, let's uh, take a, I mean, we got a lot to talk about. You're a filmmaker. We want to talk about your filmmaking. We want to take about your latest film, Money Machine, for sure, which is about that mass shooting. Let's start with your own story. What got you into filmmaking? What got you into the industry? And then what led to the making of that first film? Yeah, um, I grew up in a little small beach town in Florida. You know, uh, my parents were divorced. My mom lived in Washington State. When I was 17, I got a job in a little community college TV station called WBCC TV 68 in uh, Cocoa Beach, Florida. And um, I was a master control operator, which is the guy who puts the programs on the air. You know, they have these like three quarter inch tapes and I would put courses on the air. They had courses that you can sit at home and watch your courses on television. You know, this was before the internet was very robust. So while, while working at that TV station, I was there at night a lot and my shift was at night. So I started goofing around with the, t the equipment making um, some really bad movies, <laughs> terrible movies, in fact. But I was definitely like intrigued by it and hooked like by the process of editing. And, and pretty much from that point on, I just would spend all my free time at Barnes and Noble reading books about filmmaking, you know, books like the five C's of cinematography. And I, so I was just absolutely fascinated by filmmaking, especially my early, early part of my like around that time, I just really wasn't doing anything else but like watching films and studying and making films. Um, and I had a lot of bad films to get out of the way <laughs> before I could get to the good ones. And then, so then what happened was I ended up, you know, I left Florida and my mom lived in Washington state. So 
as you know, I, I started off at Washington State University studying uh, television and then um, ended up at Eastern Washington just because the Washington State at the time was really broadcast heavy. And, you know, they, it was basically like about putting on the news. And, and I figured out real quick that I didn't really want to do the news. So yeah. I left and then um, ultimately ended up graduating from Eastern uh, Washington University and then moving on to San Francisco State where I studied film some more. And then um, came out to L.A. in 2004, knew one person at the time, probably one of my best friends to this day, Doug Cheney. And he hooked me up with a guy that you know and I know who I did behind the scenes. <laughs> we hooked up with a guy. Yeah. So what shows have you worked on? Just We'll just go through the mill. What kind of shows have you been working on since stepping into L.A.? And starting to work. Well, you know, I started off as a machine room operator and moved up to an assistant editor. Then I started like editing behind the scenes documentaries, which you were doing as well. Yeah. So that was a really cool, that was an unbelievably cool and fun thing to do. Cause it was like, you know, if you're a film, if you're a fan of studying film, like you and I are, I mean, it was just awesome to like, I couldn't believe it. I was like in my mid twenties out here in LA making a living, editing these behind the scenes things and, and they paid well. And, and, uh, you know, I did I did some of the behind the scenes for like The Hills Have Eyes, um, did some pieces for like Sky High and uh, and even High School Musical, too. And I still have those doggone songs still like, stuck in my head from that. And so but then what happened, as you know, is like the DVD industry. Well, actually, there's a really funny story about what happened with The Hills Have Eyes. The Hills Have Eyes, I think, was one of the one of the last behind the scenes documentaries I did. Um and that's a story for another time, but, uh, about, <laughs> but basically what happened was, um, you know, the whole DVD industry of like, you know, behind the scenes and, and that, that all kind of died off. It took a hard dive in 08, you know, when the economy slumped and all of a sudden DVD. And so that industry pretty much died. And then from there I moved into editing television. I got a big break editing, uh, as an editor on Chris Angel Mind Freak, which was like, you know, A&E's, um, number one show at the time. And so I was editing magic and, and that was a great experience. I loved working on that show. Um, Chris Angel mind freak. Um, you know, it was, it was fascinating to do. And it was really like an editor's show in that it was very like stylish and you could just do anything you wanted. And, and um, just the tricks Chris Angel was doing were pretty amazing, you know, and we're, we're all part of that. So that was pretty incredible. And then from there I moved on, edited a lot of, um, Better to, you know, worked on other TV shows. You know, I've worked on like Naked and Afraid, Catfish Untold Stories, a lot of true crime shows, which are my favorite shows to do. And uh, so, yeah, I've been fortunate, you know, to be to have a good career out here. And I'm in the Editors Guild and, um, you know, and I make documentaries as well. So I have to ask with Chris Angel, were you kind of in on his process at all uh, being an editor for his his TV shows? To be completely honest with you, we all signed, everybody on that show signed like a non-disclosure agreement. I mean, Chris Chris Angel is very talented. There's, you know, a lot of people saying a lot of negative things about him. But um, one thing that nobody can dispute and everybody I think to work on the show would agree on is that he had an outstanding work ethic and he was very, very good at what he did, in my opinion. So yeah, it was fun to be a part of that. Talk to me real quick, being an editor, I'm an editor as well. We have a unique perspective when we watch the news, when we watch television. Yeah. Um, so if you're sitting next to someone that has nothing to do with you know, video production at all, and you're watching the same show with him, kind of 
lead, let's lead the audience through that process of what you're seeing that that person might not be seeing. Absolutely. I mean, that's a really interesting point that you hit on. And, and I do think us editors are generally very, very skeptical of um, news and, and because, and that's because people who work as editors understand how things can be slanted or manipulated. And one really clear example of that, I thought, um, how, how, how people can basically use craft to deceive, you know, with the right, like heavy music and hits and drones and stuff like that. You can make anybody look evil. You know, it's like when you see those political ads, like they're just like Don Russell is a is a jerk who da 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 and and who hates America and all this stuff. And it has like the the really like hard nasty music and shows him like in black and white, like like with the most unflattering shot of him ever. And and it's just you know like they basically make these people to be the devil incarnate. And then. Um, and then the next, the person that that campaign is supporting, it's like all of a sudden they switch to this cheery music, you know. But Bobby Long loves America and has all the answers, and and you know it's this nice brightly lit shot, and he's he's smiling next to his beautiful wife and that music. So I, I mean, I think the political ads are like the perfect example of um like like of how deceptive editing can be and and um and how deceptive the media can be on their coverage or something. So that being said, what led to you directing a film about the mass shooting in Las Vegas? Uh, that's an interesting question. So the very first time I ever went to Las Vegas was like 2004. And um, I'll never forget rolling into Vegas. And like, I, you know, the first place I stopped was like a 7-Eleven or something to go get some coffee. And I just remember the first thing I ever saw in Vegas was this girl just kind of like you know outside of the 7-eleven her mascara was all smudged looked like she was crying she had like a suitcase with her stuff in it and you know and it, it, she was just sad and desperate and um for whatever reason that kind of like image like permanently stayed with me and it just kind of you know because you know i got my coffee and then out there and i'm looking at the bright lights of uh vegas like a couple minutes later and all the glitz and you know so i was i was definitely very fascinated by the stark contrast you know you see a lot of that in vegas if you drive around vegas you see a lot of people who've lost all their money people who've just become homeless like you get away from that vegas strip and you really kind of realize the toll that vegas takes on people and um and i remember talking to a former lvmpd cop who was a fraud investigator and he told me that one of the things about Vegas is that people get really caught up and, you know, every, every, you walk into a gas station and there's like slot machines there. And so kind of even the residents get caught up in this stuff and fraud is a big problem in Vegas because people will gamble away their paycheck and then kind of like embezzle funds from their company. And that's something that happens far more in Vegas than other cities. So there's all this kind of like beneath that glitz is a lot of drama and darkness that I, I was absolutely fascinated by that. The first time I walked into Vegas and saw that, that stark contrast. And, um, and I'm still fascinated by it. And that's really what led me to make my first film, what happened in Vegas, which, um, you've seen. And, um, of course the incident that prompted, prompted what happened in Vegas was a very interesting one. Um, basically, you know, the story I, uh, I was walking in a parking lot with my friend when I saw four LVMPD cops who who arrested this guy. He was in custody and they were basically abusing this guy and, and taking a great deal of joy in doing so. 
Um, they were laughing and tugging on his cuffs, like twisting his cuffs really hard, like cutting off the circulation, saying, you know, does your mama know she raised an F up? Does she know that, son? And so instead of like getting this guy down to jail, they were just like reveling and torturing him. And so I called, I know this is dumb, but I called 911 and said, hey, you guys got to get a sergeant or lieutenant down here. You got these four officers who were just like abusing this guy. Like they're, they're inflicting punishment and taking out their anger on this guy, like rather than like getting him down to jail. This guy was like screaming his head off. And then on the 911 call, they asked me what color my clothes were. And I said, you know, uh, white shirt, khaki pants. Next thing you know, and, and I guess that information is relayed right away to one of the officers because uh, Officer Mark Bellinger walked up to me with a scowl on his face and said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, I've been watching what you're doing. And there's nothing right about it. So I called 911 and told him about it. And he got furious and goes, you better get the hell out of here or I'm going to have you arrested. And as I was walking away with my friend, I said, arrested for what? Next thing you know, I was on the ground with a boot on my hit face. They, um, you know, cut off. Like I couldn't breathe. They had me and they were just like roughing me up real good. Um, it was like two, two minutes of like laying on my stomach, barely able to breathe. And I remember one of the things the guy said to me, he said, where are you from? I said, California. He goes, well, why don't you stay there? These guys took a great, I could tell they were delighting in torturing me because I'd reported them. So it, it was like, I'd reported them. So they were now going to get some street justice on me. You know, and, and what was interesting is this, this, hap this incident happened in a parking lot with cameras everywhere. And, uh, you know, when we went to get the, the footage, it, they conveniently claimed that the cameras weren't on that night. It was a Sunday night. And I mean, it was just a bunch of crap. You know, like, but this is what this department does. They, they lie. They make videos disappear. One of the most disgraceful police departments in America, and they're one of the very few police departments that has their own misconduct page on Wikipedia. If you look up LVMPD, one of the early things that appears is like the misconduct in the LVMPD page. I mean, that's how dirty they are. And so my incident kind of prompted me to look into the LVMPD and then of course, I, the movie starts with my incident and then delves into these other incidents where, you know, like video conveniently went disappearing and people were murdered who weren't even committing crimes. And, and you know, so that was basically the gist of what, what happened in Vegas was about. And then, of course, right as the movie was done and getting ready to be released, one October happened. You know, I think we were a month away from releasing the film commercially on all the platforms, somewhere around a month away. And so... It was too big of a story to not include some of it in the film. So we went to, back to Vegas and filmed. But as you could see, like the one October <laughs> shooting stuff in, in, in that movie was, was a little bit tacked on. Like it wasn't nearly as um, immersive as, as, as my upcoming film, Money Machine, which really takes a hard, deep dive into the Vegas mass shooting and how it had to be covered up to get the registers ringing again. And that's why the movie's called Money Machine. What does Money Machine mean to you in reference to Las Vegas? It means that Vegas is a money machine. And when money, when something gets in the way of the money, they, it, it's got to be shoved out of the way at all costs. And, you know, these people, these 58 people who died had to be shoved out of the way and were, you know, these people who were shot had to be shoved out of the way. The truth of um, how MGM was liable for this and how they drove Stephen Paddock to do this, that had to be shoved out of the way. Um, you know, that town is, Las Vegas is about money, money, money. And you saw that most egregiously with the Vegas mayor, Carolyn Goodman, who appeared on Anderson Cooper and, and offered like 
the city to be like an experiment for COVID, you know, like, yeah, come to Vegas and we'll be an experiment and people can contract COVID and, and take it back to their states and, and we can wipe out the U.S., but we got to keep the registers ringing. So that was really kind of like the epitome of how shallow and um, money obsessed Vegas is when you saw the mayor make a real ass of, out of herself with Anderson Cooper, but she was dead serious. I mean, you know, and, and that town, someone like her, Carolyn Goodman is put in power to protect the money. And um, that's what she was attempting to do, you know? But the thing that was silly about what she was saying was Vegas is different from every other cities because they have over 40 million tourists a year. So if you have people coming into casinos, touching slot machines, like not only are they going to get COVID, but they're going to bring it back to Nebraska or, or Boston or Iowa or wherever they're from. And so you would have an epidemic that could potentially like, you know, be one hell of a problem. Now, do you live in Vegas or are you living in Los Angeles? I live in Los Angeles. And that's one of the reasons I'm able to do what I do. If I lived in Vegas, I think exposing corruption like I do would be a pretty dangerous proposition. Do you have any contacts in Vegas that you work with at all when you're doing all this? Oh, yeah. I got many. That's actually how I see what happened was what, when what happened in Vegas came out, it was, it was very surprising to me, the reaction, because as you know, the film's really like harrowing and dark and exposes corruption. I was surprised. I really thought that they, that Vegas would burn me at the stake for this film and that the LVMPD would, you know, and what happened. And, and certainly there were a lot of people who were very upset about the film, but what was really interesting, what I never anticipated happening was that retired LVMPD officers, like five or six of them, got in touch with me and started reaching out and saying, listen, we really support what you're doing. This was once a good department. and It's become a terrible one. And, you know, we were part of that department when it was a good one. And we want to see it be good again. And we have to get these corrupt leaders out of there. And so the reason the only reason I was able to make money machine and really dive beneath the surface and get behind the lies um, which we exposed in the film is because of those cops, those retired LVMPD cops who were getting the information directly from current officers in the department, you know? So they were the ones who were leaking me information and, and they're the ones who told me that, Hey, there was an accidental discharge in Steven Paddock's room and LVMPD officer fired a gun and John Lombardo didn't even say anything about it. And they, they're also the ones who told me that, um, you know, an LVMPD officer was on, who could have stopped the shooting was on the 31st floor shaking like a little baby in the hallway instead of like going in and stopping Paddock. And, you know, and you had people die from that. The LVMPD could have stopped the shooting a lot faster than they did. And when they didn't, they had to cover their butts and they ha had to lie. And that's what they did. And that's what Money Machine exposes. It dies beneath the surface. And, and the information in the film is all 100% vetted and true because... It has to be, you know, when you make a movie about this, you've got to be right because otherwise they're going to come and attack you. So I'm really excited about the movie and um, I wouldn't have been able to make it without the cooperation of retired LVMPD officers. Yeah. What do they attribute the change to? Did they have they shared their opinion on that at all? It's just like if you went down the top administrators of the LVMPD, you'd go, you're kidding. Those guys are in charge. You know, the fish rots from the head. And when you have dirty people at the top, a dirty culture permeates the entire department. And that's kind of what's brought the LVMPD to its sad state. And this isn't just me saying this. If you if you reach out, you know, if you were in a bar and happen to have a beer with an LVMPD officer and, and you ask them what they think of senior management, they would 
you'd get an earful. Nobody likes these guys. Nobody likes the administrators and nobody likes that the LVMPD has become a disgrace. You know, it was a once a proud department and now they're probably the most corrupt department in America. Definitely in the top three. You know, it's hard to say exactly, but there's not many departments that have their own misconduct Wikipedia page. So Money Machine, the film that's documenting all this, maybe take us through the process of as a filmmaker how are you capturing these stories? What tools or methods are you using to illustrate the stories? This film, Money Machine, was stark contrast to what happened in Vegas in the way I approached it. Money Machine really feels kind of dangerous. <laughs> like, it's a film that really feels like, I can't believe these guys got in there and got that information. And and so, and, and the reason that we're able to do that is, you know, and what happened in Vegas, I had a different approach. I kind of like had a crew that was very skilled and professional, but it was, it was a far more like button down operation. And these, these guys wouldn't go in and, you know, they were very like by the book. Um, this time out, I had, I kind of went the opposite direction. Just I had a couple of renegades who came up huge for us. One of those was a guy named Mike Turber, who has an organization called Five by Five News. And he's the one who got in touch with Stephen Paddock's brother, you know, and allowed us to interview Paddock's brother, who was able to shed light on the real reason that his brother did this. And, and that's the reason that MGM's trying to hide. So, you know, I had people like Mike who were just fearless and um, willing to do anything. And, and I was able to get information so it was kind of like we did this like motley crew of pirates on this one just going into vegas like going to places that you're not really supposed to go to get the information or, or the, the, the films don't it was in other words it was just an entirely different approach and i think it was a better approach like the film feels a lot more alive and dangerous you know so so that has pros and cons you know if you're making it if you're exposing corruption or making one of those documentaries you, you better have some people who don't who are fearless on your team. And if, 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 if they're not, you'll, you'll feel it in the finished product. Tell me about the interview with Stephen Paddock's brother. What was his uh, take on the motive? Well, Stephen Paddock's brother, who, you know, you could argue knows him better than anyone else in the world, basically laid it all out for us. And he lays it all out in the movie about how his brother started in Reno. And the reason he started in Reno is because he could be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. So you know, before Paddock was a regular in Vegas, he was in Reno and he happened to be a very good gambler. And his brother also told me something really interesting. Like the perception was that Stephen Paddock got rich from gambling. He did not get rich from gambling. He was basically rich from like property um, investments and such. And, you know, he was retired and, and it was something to do. It was something really interesting to do to go into a casino and you get free shrimp cocktails and you get treated like a god and here's show tickets. But all Stephen Paddock was ever trying to do was break even because he felt like if he broke even and he got all this free stuff, you know, shows and comps and free shrimp cocktails and all this, then he'd, he'd actually be coming out ahead. So when Stephen was very successful in Reno, when they figured out that this guy isn't going to lose, you know, is a good gambler and isn't going to lose money, they kind of started cutting him off. So he kind of got pushed out of Reno a bit and then he came to Vegas and it was the same thing, of course. At first, they're wooing him because they think he's going to be the sucker who comes in, you know, this rich guy who comes in and loses his money. Um, those are the people they spend the most time trying to woo. And then when they figured out that they weren't going to make any money off Stephen Paddock, they started cutting off his comps and doing all these things. And that began the process of him really hating these casinos because the, the way Eric Paddock explained it was Steve basically viewed it as like a deal's a deal. Like, 
you guys said you're going to give me these things and you and now you're taking it away and I played square and you're not playing square and so his brother feels that Steven wanted to do the one thing that would hurt Vegas and he did do that and what he did was disgraceful and awful but MGM doesn't want people to know that they're they help drive him to do this you know it's not it's not a random thing that he did this in MGM you know the company that had kind of been screwing him over a couple for years in his comps you know none of this means that he was at all justified I mean what he did was awful and ridiculous but there but, but it's still a reason like there it's still the reason and they're trying to suppress the truth surrounding one October and MGM's culpability and liability in the one October mass shooting they're far more liable than the public knows, and we're going to be exposing that in Money Machine. If I'm still alive by then. No, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with what you're you're saying there, but there are some who have other theories as to what happened on one October. Um, do you oh, go yeah. into any of those theories? A lot of theories. I know. I hear from them every day. Do you go into those theories at all? Absolutely. You know, I actually interviewed a forensic audio analysis, an expert named Rob Maher who's a professor and an audio forensics expert. I mean, this guy goes into like court, you know, and during trials and like gives testimony about the audio recording. So he's a highly trained sound expert. And, and we filmed an interview with him in the movie where he analyzes the sound waves and he concluded, and he, and he also put it on the screen so you can see the waveforms. And, and um, he concluded that it all happened from one gun and that the echoes bouncing off the buildings because you have a lot of hard glass surfaces in Vegas kind of created this echo and made it sound like there were multiple shooters. But I mean, he did a pretty rigorous examination of that footage. And then the other thing that he pointed out was that if there was multiple shooters, you would just continue wreaking havoc. There wouldn't be any breaks, but there was breaks in the shooting, you know, volleys, like he shot, you know, somewhere between like a dozen and 16 or 17 rounds. And then there'd be like a gap for like 15, 20 seconds as he reloaded. And, 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 and that actually makes perfect sense if you think about it, because Stephen Paddock was a 64-year-old guy, not in great shape. And I don't know if you've ever fired an AR-15, but they're, it's very physical to fire those things. You know, they, they, kick, they beat the crap out of your shoulder pretty good. And so I think those are the two most important points is that if there were multiple shooters, why and we go into this in money machine why were there gaps between all these volleys instead of inflicting maximum mayhem and spraying the place continuously um and then the second thing is you know when you have forensic audio experts analyzing the audio and saying that's all from one gun you know so there there wasn't overlapping gun if you look at the sound waves you're not going to hear overlapping distinct sounds you'll, you'll hear echoes but, but you're not hearing like two different like and so i mean it's a sophisticated process but when you dig into the science of it it just simply doesn't add up you know and, and i mean the way i approach a film like this is if i can't prove it i'm not going to put it in the movie because i think that it, it can't just be a theory you have to show things that support that i haven't seen one thing that suggests to me that there's hard evidence of multiple shooters you know originally i thought there was like until we started really like getting into a rigorous examination of the science of it. And the reason I thought it was originally right after it happened was because I had so many of the survivors coming to me and telling me they felt like they could never get away from the gunfire. But it turns out that 
a lot of that is simply because of the hard surfaces of Vegas and you had sound bouncing around off the buildings, et cetera. So it makes sense that they thought there were multiple shooters. I mean, and it was chaos. It was pandemonium too. So you had people running around with blood, running to the casinos, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was a wild night. Were you able to interview any of the survivors from the night? But yeah, we, we have multiple survivors in the film. You know, we have one woman named Catherine who like she watched a guy like die right in front of her just horrific things these people went through and that's what makes the movie effective is we show you know it's from the survivor's point of view without any kind of bs like they're laying out their truth how would you describe this film to someone you know if you're sitting next to them on a, a flight to los angeles and they ask what your film is about what would you tell them and i would say machines about how the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history became one of the most quickly forgotten because Vegas needed to get the registers ringing again. I, I would say that in the nutshell, in the one-line synopsis, that that's what Money Machine is essentially about, is money and how this had. And so there was a cover-up in this case, but it wasn't the one that people think. You know, it wasn't multiple shooters. The cover-up was a corporate cover-up, and it was a cover-up by the LVMPD of their own incompetence on that night because you had sheriff joe lombardo it was actually an election year a lot of people don't realize that he was running for sheriff when this happened to get reelected, and it doesn't look real good you know it hadn't been you know you had that cop who got fired for being a coward at that school and that was like a national not in vegas but you know it, that was like a national story that brought disgrace upon the department and so he couldn't have these things coming out about how his officers misfired a weapon in Paddock's room and, and how cops were shaking in the hallways instead of stopping Paddock. So he buried that information. And a lot of it didn't really come out until after he got elected because he suppressed the body cam footage, uh, meaning that they spent a lot of money on lawyers making sure that that footage didn't get re released because they got sued for the footage. Like multiple me media organizations like uh, the LA Times and they, they all got together and like sued the LBMPD. And so they had to release those documents, which they should have released willingly. You know, they're, they're, they're a government agency. They work for the people, but they, they battled it. And their reason for battling it was so Joe Lombardo could save his butt. And it was successful because, because of the appeals and all this stuff that those lawyers and the public had to pay for that too, by the way. The public has to pay for the LVMPD to have lawyers who are hired to suppress public information from getting out. Um, and so because they, the lawyers, you know, they weren't able to stop the, the body cam stuff from coming out, but they were able to delay it until, you know, after Lombardo got elected. What did that body cam footage show? I mean, it showed a lot. It showed, you know, it showed officer Cordell Hendricks shaking in the hallway like a little coward as, as you could hear Stephen Paddock firing weapons. It showed MGM's armed security standing there doing nothing. And then, of course, it showed a lot of just horrific violence from that night. And and when I went through that footage, it was, you know, I, I actually was able to get most of the body cam footage, you know, that and which comprises a lot of the film, like on the ground body cam footage. How do you get that footage as a filmmaker? Um, and how do you get the rights to use that footage in a film? Well, thank God for the LA, you know, for the, the media doing the lawsuit, because when they won the lawsuit, the LVMPD was forced to release that. And so basically, I just sent, I reached out to LVMPD and, and had uh, made a media request. And they said, okay, send us a hard drive. And I sent them a hard drive. And they put all the 
footage on it and I went over there and, and picked it up. I even filmed it actually, <laughs> me picking, because I was pretty nervous about it. How was your interaction as a filmmaker making these films? How has your interaction with the LV and PD been? They basically go to great lengths to not mention, like, like I, I feel like they're given strict instructions not to talk about me or the film because they know that I'm, you know, digging for the truth and that the truth isn't always um, flattering. So by and large, it's just kind of a non-existent relationship. They don't, I mean, they're, they're, they're obviously very aware of me in the film, but they don't like to acknowledge it. You know, that's kind of how it goes in Vegas. Like they, the whole town plays this game of like, pretending that critics don't exist you know if you're if you're critical of Vegas, like they, they won't mention your name and all and um so so that's kind of my non my non-existent relationship with the lvmpd now as we have this conversation this is may 29th and a few days ago footage was released of george floyd you know being killed on the streets of minneapolis um, yep. through what appears to be police brutality um and i'm looking here uh CNBC is reporting that the officer involved in that was just arrested. What are your thoughts on that whole situation? I think they not he not needs to not only be arrested, but they need to throw his butt in prison for. I, I, I'll be honest with you, if they if they put that guy in an electric chair, I'd be fine with that. Um, we need to start getting rid of the bullies and thugs, and we need to say they they need they need to not be cops in the first place, because you know I mean, you know here are these people living their lives, you know, be normal people. It's not like this guy was robbing a bank for God's sakes and he ends up dead. The fact of the matter is this guy should have never been a cop in the first place. You know, those four cops shouldn't be in law enforcement. I mean, so I, I think it's sad. I think it's disgraceful. And look at the ripple effect from it. You know, yesterday it was reported that a person died in the, in the protests. So, I mean, not only did George Floyd get killed, but you have other people getting killed. And I think that's squarely the fault of those officers and the police unions who keep bailing out these crap cops and also just the, the politicians who don't do anything about this, you know? You know, this guy was arrested. We'll see if any if he actually goes to prison, though. It's, it's very, it does occasionally happen that a cop goes to prison, but it's pretty rare, you know? So, you know, he was arrested, but, but we'll, we'll see. One thing people don't understand is that the unions, the police unions in this country are tremendously strong and powerful. They battle huge to get the, like, they basically their idea is all cops are all always right all the time. And it doesn't, and they'll defend, they'll work for them, defend them, do whatever. To, and But the bottom line is, I mean, everybody in America knows what this officer did is wrong. Everybody in America knows, including those union people deep down in their hearts, that this guy, him in particular, belongs in prison. So I just hope that happens. We need to have like a, a Me Too kind of movement for policing in this country. Like, like the Me Too movement, you know, people can say what they want about it, but it was darn effective. You know, you ended up with Harvey Weinstein behind bars and just the ripple effect of it in Hollywood. And it led to um, change and some corrupt people being put out of power. And the same thing needs to happen in policing. Get these scumbags who are keeping these dirty cops on the streets, get them out of there. And don't and don't worry about their feelings. Just get them out of there. You know, like or, or incidents like this are going to keep happening. We need to not only get the bad cops off the streets, but we need to get rid of the administrators and unions that that help keep them there. The bad cops. In your research, have you found a situation where unions have held officers accountable? 
No, especially in Vegas. Um, in fact, in Las Vegas, there's a guy named Brian Yant who murdered this guy named Trevon Cole. You know, my film goes into this and what happened in Vegas. Basically because – so so the Trevon Cole situation was he was a small-time drug dealer selling $15, 20 worth of weed here and there. He was in his house at like early in the morning, and Brian Yant – was was um the, the LVMPD detective who basically was going to bust Tremon Cole and it was going to be this big dramatic bust where they barge into his house with a no knock warrant and arrest him, and so Tremon Cole went to like flush the marijuana down the toilet and Brian Yant shot him and killed him, and um and and claimed that he made a furtive movement, and and but the disgraceful thing about this is that the truth is they could have got. Trevon Cole just going to a 7-Eleven or whatever, you know, but they had to make good TV. So they had to have this big dramatic raid. And the bottom line was a guy ended up getting killed. who shouldn't have been killed. You know, you would think that Brian Yant's career in law enforcement would be done, but instead he's over at the Las Vegas police union making over a hundred thousand a year. You know, it's, it's just unbelievable. So he's working for the union now. Yeah. He works for the LVPPA in Vegas um, and pulls over six figures a year. And it's, it's just kind of like it never happened. And, and, you know, and what happened in Vegas, I interviewed the people who worked with Jermon Cole and knew him. And it, they're just astonished because this, this was a really good guy. You know, they had him on a management track at work, you know, to be a manager because he was good salesman, really good with people. So he was a guy that everybody really liked and who was selling a little bit of weed on the side, like a lot of people, you know, and he ended up dead and there was no accountability. And, and I want to say this too. It's like, it's interesting how arbitrary sometimes it, these riots are because I feel like there's been many more of these that's just somehow don't capture the American zeitgeist like this one does. You know, there's kind of an intangible element in some of these where they just kind of like go huge and some of them are just as egregious and they don't go anywhere. Do you have any idea what that element might be? I don't, you know, I think that, um, I think race has a lot to do with it. Like, well, Trevon Cole was black as well, but but I think it's it's the undercurrent of racism and overt racism that really kind of causes these things to blow up. So so I think that is really the element, you know. And, and and I also think the other thing is, you know, video cameras. I think this stuff has been going on with policing for a hundred years, to be honest with you. But the only difference is that smartphones exist now, so you're seeing a lot more when you can, can actually see the evidence instead of the officer's BS lie, you know, the unions always tell them to say, um, you know, he made a furtive movement. Like there's certain crap that they feed these guys to say, or I was in fear of my life. Like if they say those things then they can justify and they're kind of coached to do that. But when you see the videos and they're as egregious as that one, it's kind of hard to, uh, to argue with it, you know, and making what happened in Vegas. I, I personally interviewed families who've, had somebody killed by police who shouldn't have been killed and so these are good people regular people who are broken i mean they're you know they're able to carry on with their lives but you can tell they'll never be the same and, and i've seen that many times it's it's quite sad i have african-american friends who um and this isn't all of my african-american friends but some who are are quick to blame all white people for this situation and are very vocal to say that all white people are silent on this issue and all white people are privileged and all black people are, you know, not privileged. And they, they take it to that extreme. 
I mean, what? gosh, I, I, I would, I mean, I've, I've certainly tried to hard, battle as hard as I can to bring police corruption and accountability to light. So, you know, because I, you know, I, I too am a victim of it. Um, and I think that's really the difference is like when it happens to you, when you stand five feet in front of a cop and watch them commit something just that's just flat out dirty and then you watch them lie and get away with it, it never, it sticks with you. And, 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 um, and, and I mean, you, you see that, that it's a real thing. Police corruption is a very real thing. And, and my experience changed me for the rest of my life. And it also set my life on a course that um, I never really anticipated. You know, I really had never thought much about cops. Like, like, like cops are not a big part of my life or, or holding them accountable until I had that experience in August, 2013. And, um, you know, it kind of set me on this course. And, you know, and I think that one of my goals is to just kind of show people how absurd and ridiculous this is. And that's why I do, I do a lot of just videos that aren't, you know, that, that aren't, I just do little random three or four minute videos about police corruption and brutality, just to like show people how absurd this is. And these aren't videos that make me any money or go anywhere. They do nothing but get that message out, you know, and it's just a message that I wake up with every day to try to get out to the world that this is wrong and it needs to stop and we need to start holding these people accountable. So my life really kind of snapped into focus, I think in August, 2013, the, the, the truth is that before then, you know, I was just kind of like, I was in LA, I was working in television. I'd had a good career and, you know, I was drinking beer and watching football on Sundays and I, I wasn't doing a whole lot. And then um, that was in, the, in the way of activism and then, you know, that night in August changed all that. So I do think I can understand it on a deep level because that's happened to me. And I watch these officers lie <laughs> and get away with it. Were you taken into custody at all? Or did they just attack you and leave you on the street? No, they, they had to take me into custody. So what happened was like a lieutenant arrived because of what happened, because I had they'd physically, you know, I had marks, you know, I had boot mark on my head. I had, they'd rough me up pretty good. So once it gets to that point, they know it's going to be a lawsuit if they don't book you for something so they 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 booked me on some trumped up charges and then they those charges didn't stick you know they, they just they threw me in clark county detention center for three days and then it was like a low-level misdemeanor of like i think resisting arrest or something but they so they never intended they knew those charges were bs but they needed those charges to hold me for three days in clark county detention center so it was a pretty dirty thing you know it was it was dirty and they and they know it was dirty but they never intended to charge, you know, it's like you have to charge people to hold them like that. So, so, but it was a situation where they had to cover their butts and they did. But I think in the long run, they lost huge. That's pretty undeniable now. Had you been in jail before? No. In fact, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I like that's a million miles away from any place I imagined I'd be. I mean, you know me, I'm not the kind of guy who, I'd never been in trouble with the law whatsoever, you know, and I really wasn't, I mean, I mean, and to the, you know, pretty much, I don't think anybody views it as anything other than a lot. I mean, people, I don't think many people in Vegas or anywhere think that the LVMPD was right to do what they did. I mean, even cops came up to me and said, wow, I can't believe they put you in jail for that, for calling 911 to report police brutality, you know? Did you ever bring a lawsuit against them? No, I didn't. Um, I actually started doing that, but then like I got a lawyer and, and, but the, 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 the issue was when they claim that the video 
in the parking lot um, because this happened on private property. You know, in twenty in August twenty thirteen, the LVMPD officers did not have their body cams, so or they didn't have most of them didn't have body cams, and these officers didn't, and so it was up to that private entity to like release the video, and that private entity claimed that the cameras weren't on that night. It was a Sunday evening, and you know it was a sleepy evening, and they didn't have those cameras. So that that was, in my opinion, complete and utter BS. So because when I saw that the video, you know, that there wasn't video. Um, I started, you know, I was continuing with a lawsuit for a bit. And then I kind of realized, God, this is going to be one of these things that drags on for four or five years. You know, I'm going to be driving back to Vegas to go to court. I'm going to do this. And and at the end of it, I might get like, you know, very little money. And so I just real quickly abandoned that process and, and started doing the one thing that made me feel empowered again, which is actually make a movie about the, the corruption, you know? And so I, I, I decided I wanted to spend three or four years actually making a film about it, about the LVMPD rather than just um, sitting in court and paying lawyer fees. And, you know, I mean, these lawsuits are unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, they can go on for five, six, seven years. And I knew that because I had started talking to people about it. And unless you have, video evidence. It's always the officer's word versus yours and the officer, you know, so that's why the only way to hold police accountable is if there's video that exists. I don't want to belabor the point, but can you lead us through just your own emotions of witnessing what you saw and then experiencing, you know, what you experienced and then being in jail for three days? So what was interesting, and we go into this in the film, is I was walking out in the parking lot with my friend, Rhett, Okay. And interestingly, Rhett had actually been a former LVMPD videographer for years for the SWAT team. Um, And so he was real familiar with police and knew a lot of people in the LVMPD. And when we saw that man being abused, he, he, his eyes just got the size of saucers and he's looking at me and going, this is wrong. What they're doing is wrong. And I watched these guys and they were just like, you know, they're twisting this guy's cuff and he was screaming and going, you know, does your mama know she raised an F up? And, and it was just going on and on and on. And um, I just thought it was awful that, that they were delighting and torturing this guy. So you can kind of hear it in my voice. I got angry and I called 911 and, you know, I didn't know who else to contact and I reported it. Um, and, uh, and then, and I would say when, when that, after, when they were, when I report it and they beat the crap out of me and, you know, and I ended up in Clark County detention center for three days, it was more of like, have you ever had an experience in your life where you're almost apart from yourself and you cannot believe that what just happened happened? That's what it was like when those officers attacked me. Like it was the most surreal couple minutes of my life. Like I could not believe this was happening. You know, um, it was just shocking and odd and, um, and then, you know, when I sat there in the <laughs> jail for a couple of days, I, I was just kind of like, you know, it was, well, pretty uneventful. You sit there and they bring you crappy food. And I was in a holding cell with like a dozen other people. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, it was, it was fine. You know, like they, they, um, I mean, being in, like some of those people were, I, I thought most of them were, you know, they, we all kind of got along okay, I would say, in there. Um, it was just there wasn't much to do, and nobody seemed to want to create trouble. So we all just kind of sat there and talked, 
you know, BSed a bit while we're uh, waiting, you know, and obviously I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I'll tell you, I've never looked worse in my life than I, you know, my, my clothes were ripped, you know, the crotch of my pants was ripped. I had, a, you know, white shirt on and it was just like covered in filth and there's blood on it. And I had poop on my face. And I mean, I looked as bad. And, and, and so when I got let out, um, I couldn't get a freaking taxi. <laughs> You know, because I looked like I had to walk around it because I looked like a bum, you know, people thought I was a bum. And then I finally got a taxi and got home and I, I actually had a conversation with the taxi driver. I said, I told him what happened and he just looked at me and said, I believe you. He's like, and what it's it's going to take is, is a big press story to like break this. Um, and I, And so in my mind, I was like, yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to expose. I need to get like the press, you know, I need to get the media. You know, and then I was like, well, wait a minute, I am the media, you know, I work in television, like I, I need to do my own, you know, I need to make a movie about this. And so I started investigating other cases. And that was really how what happened in Vegas came about. So with with Money Machine, this new film that you have, what are the next steps for it? Yeah, Money Machine was all ready to play festivals, you know, we were supposed to play Cleveland, AM Docs, and many others as well. And then of course, COVID came and shut that all down. Um, you know, Cleveland International went online and, and a lot of other places just postponed. And so, you know, the movie keeps getting into more festivals and those festivals keep getting delayed or moved online or in some cases just flat out canceled. So, I mean, I think that I'm kind of in the same position as everyone else, which is like kind of waiting for this thing to go away before I can really give hardcore dates and information about the release. You know, it's real important to, to go to festivals before your movie's released, just to kind of like watch the film in front of audiences and get press and, and also the process of just seeing if there's anything not working so you can tighten it up before you release the movie. So that's the other value festivals have. So we're just kind of like waiting for the world to get back again. And, you know, the movie's actually going to be playing at Freedom Fest in uh, July in Vegas. And, uh, you know, I've been in touch with the organizers and I'm like, hey, listen, is this really going to happen? Like, is Freedom Fest really going to happen? Or is this going to be another festival that gets canceled? They assured me that they're almost certain it's actually going to happen. So I'll be real excited. To, I'll actually be premiering the film in Vegas. Um, whereas, you know, that that wasn't originally going to happen because Cleveland and AM Docs would have been first. That's an interesting turn of events. Yeah. How do you get distribution after that? Are you are you shopping for distribution or do you have ideas in mind of how to distribute it after the festivals? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really I, I feel it's important to get more press and build more hype and momentum from from festivals before we like actively seek distribution. So I'm kind of like focusing on that, like, like a lot of social media and kind of like getting the word out about the film um, and just kind of like building up a following because one thing I know about distribution is that you have to create, you have to show them that, you, that there's an audience and you have to do a lot of it yourself. Meaning what I mean is distribution in the independent film ha has dramatically changed in the last 20 years. You know, like, like you and I kind of came up in the era, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands where films could play at Sundance and they'd get bought for like a million dollars, like super size me and, and, um, that's pretty rare nowadays. See, a lot of that was predicated on DVD sales, you know? So meaning that like, you know, they could sell 50,000 DVDs of a super, even if the film didn't kill theatrically, they, they could count on like selling the DVDs for something like Super Size Me, you know, 
50,000 DVDs, the blockbuster and video stores or whatever. And so that was kind of like what allowed that really robust independent filmmaking market of the 90s and early 2000s. What happened after 2008 when it collapsed, when DVD, you know, ceased to be, you know, and, you know, who, who watches DVDs or buys them nowadays? Um, when that didn't happen, a lot of distributors folded. A lot of the studios had like, you know, like Warner Classics and places like that. Just shut, Most of them were gone. Remember Think Film? Um, you know, they did a lot of good stuff. Those places all just ended up closing their doors. You know, Artisan, I'm not sure if they're around anymore. I think they're not. Um, you know, they distribute like Blair Witch and, um, and Pi. Um, so these places ended up shutting their doors. And so now what we have with a lot of distributors is that they're almost more like aggregators, meaning that they'll get your film up online and they'll kind of like take a cut, but they're not going to be, they're not pushing it like they would in the old independent era. So I think in many ways, this is really exciting for filmmakers. It means they can kind of like do what they've never really been able to do before, which is take control of their distribution and build their own following rather than relying on somebody else to do it. I mean, that said, if the right distribution deal came along, I'd take it. Um, and, you know, and I'm, we'll probably end up with a distributor. But right now, I think you need to go into it with the idea that you're hell or high water. You're going to build your own following and get that film to audiences, whether the distributors are on board or not. I don't believe in waiting around and, and, you know, and I don't believe in the Sundance lottery ticket. <laughs> you know, like, Even films that get into Sundance nowadays, a lot of them, you know, never seen or heard from again. So I think a lot of the filmmakers nowadays that, that get their films seen and get them out there are taking a lot of it upon themselves to get it out there. And um, I think that's actually really cool. Cause if you think about it, if you can build a following and, and build a niche and a brand, and you can make films for the rest of your life. And I think it's good to rely on other people and, and, and distributors as little as possible. That said, there are good distributors, very good ones. But I, I think the filmmaker who like makes an independent film and, and sits back with his buddies drinking beer and goes, yeah, man, we're going to get it into Sundance and it's going to get bought and for millions of dollars. I think that's, that happens maybe a couple times a year. And when it happens, it usually happens to people who are very well connected and who, you know, like it's not their first rodeo. I mean, sure, you can like spend a hundred bucks on the Sundance lottery ticket because that's all it is. But I think you should always assume the worst and be and prepare a plan to get the thing out to the world. And then and then if they get on board with it, the festivals and distributors, then that's a nice surprise. But, you know, certainly don't sit around relying on it because we're not in that era anymore. Like Miramax used to be known for like making filmmakers. Like they would pick up a film like Kevin Smith, you know, like Clerks, and then they would make Kevin Smith a household name. But that doesn't, you don't see much of that anymore. You don't see films coming out of nowhere made for $30,000 and then the distributor taking that person and making them a star. It's a wildly different era. And I think filmmakers need to take a lot more of it upon themselves. Are you experiencing that at all yourself, you know, as you're getting notoriety? with these films are you finding that your own personal brand is is building or, or how are you investing in that absolutely um i mean i think a lot of people from all over the you know i hear from just yesterday some guy who's a canadian police officer just like reached out to me and said oh i just saw what happened in vegas and i really admire what you're doing and yeah i looked on his profile and he was like a high-ranking police officer in the canadian in canada you know I, I think he's currently retired but um so, you know, what the, it's been, I've really been surprised how much 
what happened in Vegas got out into the world and got seen, you know, like over 12 foreign countries bought it for broadcast, you know, places like France, Germany, Japan. So it's been translated in different languages. So it really got seen more than I thought it would. And that's exciting. And I, and, and I hear from these people a lot, like they find me and, and um, I, I think it's very clear to people that there is what's happening with police accountability and police brutality is wrong. And they want to like support somebody who's standing up against it. So cool. I'm glad that I can be one of those guys. Like, cause I feel it in my bones, man. I really do. Like I feel the burning injustice because I've been there and I'll never forget what that's like how to come face to face with corruption and have the officers lie and get away with it. And people say like, man, you sure roughed up the LVM. And I'm like, well, cause they need to be roughed up. I mean, you know, it, it keeps happening. They keep not being accountable. They keep killing people. And what part of what I do is to just kind of, I feel like if you put this out into the universe, like for example, I just did a video about how 10 LVMPD officers have been released, released recently. And so meaning there's new job opportunities, you know, because so many other officers are behind bars. Like if you keep putting it out there that they're corrupt, can they really just carry on being corrupt or, or they at least have to be more clever or hide it better? But so, so part of what I do is to kind of like put out there in the universe, what's really going on and how corrupt this is and the idea that down the road, it'll make them less likely to do it. Now they would never acknowledge that. They'd never give me credit for it. You know, the LB, but, but I, I hope, I hope that all this means that they're a little with, with all the scrutiny that myself and others have brought upon them, that it makes them, like, oh, you know, I hope what's going on in the back of their head is, oh, man, if I, you know, if I kill this guy or beat him up for no reason, like that Ram Dennison's going to get the body cam footage and make make a, me look like the jerk I am, you know? <laughs> so I kind of hope that I have that impact, you know? This seems very much like a personal mission. What would victory look like for you? Victory would be seeing progress in Vegas, seeing every officer in Vegas with, with body cams on them, you know, not, not all the officers, only the newer officers wear them. Victory would be having an accountable police department, you know, and, um, and actually feeling like the officers who committed murder were being held accountable for it. And until I see those things, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. When you Nothing. go face to face with the, with the parents and the siblings and the friends of people who've been killed, who had a loved one killed by police, and you see that like lost look in their eye, it it does something to you for life. So if you've listened this far, you obviously have interest in Ramsey's story. Ramsey, can you tell us how we can find you on social media and how we can find your films? Yeah, you can. I mean, if you look up uh, Money Machine on Facebook and what happened in Vegas, and Money Machine is the one that is coming out soon about the one October mass shooting. And then what happened in Vegas is my film that was released in 2017, which is about corruption in the LVMPD. Um, and then on Instagram, we're, um, you know, Money Machine Movie and uh, is how you can find us. And, you know, we're out there pretty good. It's not too hard to find us. And I will have the trailer for Money Machine on my website, on shanesimonson.com forward slash podcast. Yeah. I'll put that on there for people to find and put some links on there as well. So thank you so much for joining us, Ramsey, and sharing your story. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. All right, you too. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of American Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, check out the other episodes, and leave a review. Feel free to reach out and follow us on social media. 
If you feel so inclined, you can leave a tip at Vembo.com Shane Simonson or become a Patreon supporter at Patreon.com Shane Simonson. Any support is appreciated. This is Shane Simonson signing off until next time.